HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome poultry rancher Frank Reese. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Frank about turkey, standard bread poultry, and we'll hear Frank's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. In the French Chef Cookbook, Julia advises... An eight-pound turkey, boned and stuffed, can serve 20 people. Telling advice from 1963, because that sure sounds like a small bird by today's standards. It also signals something Julia advocated, cooking the turkey cut into pieces. While the picture-perfect whole bird on a platter is the Norman Rockwell version of Thanksgiving dinner, in reality, the legs and breasts will rarely cook at the same rate. So you're bound to have overcooked breast or underdone legs if you keep the turkey whole. It's no wonder Julia's phone used to ring off the hook at Thanksgiving with desperate cooks asking her for last-minute help. She would always oblige with patient advice, but often admitted to her kitchen helpers that the caller was likely in a hopeless situation. How did they find Julia's number? She was listed in the Boston phone book. Someone who knows even more about turkeys than Julia is Frank Reese, president and founder of the Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank is a revered standard bred poultry breeder and fourth generation Kansas farmer. His life's work is about preserving biodiversity through the protection and stewardship of the oldest continuously bred flocks of standard bred poultry in the United States. 
a pioneer in the poultry industry, Frank's effort to expand breeding and rearing of heritage varieties of turkeys and chickens is nationally recognized, and his poultry is prized among the country's best chefs. His flocks are bred and raised on the Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch in Lindsburg, Kansas, south of Salina and north of Wichita, smack in the center of the country. He's also the founder of the Good Shepherd Conservancy, a not-for-profit dedicated to safeguarding biodiversity and preserving heritage poultry for future generations. Frank joins us today to talk turkey, how could I resist that, and to bring us up to speed on the importance of saving standard bred American poultry. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad you could be here, especially at the best time of year to talk about turkey. What, so let's start with the terminology, because I think I know it's important to you, and I think it's important to understand. What does the term standard bread mean, and what's the history and context behind it? Okay, I'm glad you asked that. It's a good question, and it's an important one to me. The word standard bread is referring to purebred poultry. That that particular classification was given to all poultry as early as 1873, when the American Poultry Association was founded, uh, which is the oldest agricultural organization in America. Mm. Uh, the mission and purpose of that movement back then was to stabilize and to identify particular breeds of poultry that was being raised in America. So when someone gets one of my turkeys and it says standard bred bronze or standard bred bourbon red, that means that my flock has been certified to meet all of the qualifications and standards for that particular breed and variety of turkeys. So it it actually comes with a certification, uh, which is important to me because it was important that the consumers who buy my product know they're getting the true historical bird. So maybe this is a good point to do the differentiation too between what you've just talked about, those breeds and the standard bread terminology, and what unfortunately I think most Americans are more familiar with, which is like a butterball. So what's the difference between what you just talked about and a frozen butterball in the grocery store in terms of its lineage? Okay, what you're asking is a huge, huge question. And it's always difficult for me sometimes to simplify it enough to explain. Um, the type of turkeys that I raised, especially the bronze, were is what everybody in America ate uh, from 1840 to 1950. For over 100 years, those turkeys which were raised across this country throughout all of North America is what everybody ate. But post-World War II, things began to radically change. And we moved from individual farmers and breed identification, and we moved into land-grant universities and corporate farming. And once corporate farming and the, and the grocery people began to determine what they were going to put in their stores as we moved into supermarkets, everything had to be identical. Everything had to be the same. So the scientists began to develop which 
began to develop turkeys that grew faster, turkeys that grew bigger. Uh, they radically changed the shape and conformation of the bird. And we started down the road of massive corporate farming, which changed the turkey tremendously. And there's lots of things had to come into play to make that happen. As, as they changed the skeletal structure of that bird and made it broader, fatter, bigger, shorter-legged, shorter wings and everything, uh, that meant that that bird now was no longer capable of naturally mating. So they had to go to artificial insemination. So there's a big difference between the natural turkey that I raise that still naturally mates, still can run, jump, fly, and move and act and perform natural behavior compared to the industrial turkey of today, which is incapable of all of those things. Um, you, they can now get a 12-pound turkey in 10 weeks. They can get a 19-pound turkey, I mean, not a 19, a 40-pound turkey in 19 weeks. Um, and this is through genetic engineering, not through GMOs, but through genetic engineering, selecting for certain types of mutations that allowed this to happen. It's quite impressive what they did. Well, I was going to I was going to ask you that, because in some ways you're describing something that I'm sure was marketed and sold to you know grocery and stores and distributors as progress, because in some ways it is. So maybe you could go through and obviously this is not is somewhat controversial, but to you, what are we losing and risking and jeopardizing in this thing. It certainly relates to Julia's stance that she came back right after that period you were identifying and was like, wait a second, is this really the best way to raise our food and eat? So, but I, I would curious from you how you characterize both why it's not as good. And I, I also think one of the things that you're looking at is the risk for, for the future. Yeah, that wonderful old film that Julia did many years ago where she showed where she has all the dressed chickens laying in front of her and she names them all and she goes down this list saying, you know, this is old hen and this is a cockbird and this is a broiler, this is a fire. Anyway, at the end of that conversation, she actually says, This is dying, this is going away. And so she was quite aware of the of the radical changes that were beginning to happen in chickens. And it happened in chickens before it did turkeys. Um, but the, ch the chicken and turkey that we eat today, the way in which it's produced, but more than that, the genetic makeup of that animal uh, and how it is produced within this system that we have uh, has only been, really been in existence for about 30, 40 years. So it's very recent. Um, you know, they, they have so drastically changed. But the problem with that is, is we now have a monoculture. Everything that comes down the assembly line, whether it's chicken or turkey and duck as well, it's all this very same animal. There's absolutely no difference. And calling it free-ranged organic, Amish-raised, all-natural, whatever you want, antibiotic-free, it doesn't change any of that. It's still the same single monoculture genetic animal just uh, maybe fed different or maybe treated a little different. Um, 
But what we now have is what Mother Nature really does not like, and that is a monoculture. There is no genetic diversity of any kind. Um, and also what happens to that, you pay a price for many other things. Uh, you now have an animal that has a very poor immune system, so you have to pump it full of antibiotics to keep it alive. Some people believe that they fed them antibiotics to get them um, bigger. Well, the only way that works is if an animal that is not sick eats more. So if you've got a morbidly obese turkey, in fact, even within the industry, I've heard them say, because they, they're quite aware of all these problems, um, if you get a turkey that weighs 40 pounds in 19 weeks, that's like a 11-year-old child weighing 500 pounds. And so along with that comes all the other issues, uh, the cardiac breathing uh, Crohn's disease, diabetes, everything else. And so these, they know these turkeys have these issues. And so their whole approach is so drastically different uh, in what they select for. It, it's selected for mass production of protein, and the animal pays the price. Well, and I, I think you're talking about the animal welfare aspect of it, but there's the whole other aspect. Maybe you can talk a little bit more for those who don't know of the inherent risk of monoculture, because it sounds like from what you're saying, we are on the precipice. It hasn't happened yet, but it could happen any day where, well, actually, correction, it's happening right now. There's a turkey shortage in the overall pipeline, right, which is related to these issues, no? Correct. The bird flu that just keeps mutating and mutating and mutating. 50,000 turkeys, 50, 50 million turkeys um, have died this year to the bird flu. And that bird flu just seems to become more and more virulent. Um, it seems to be causing more and more issues. And, and that has multiple reasons. This is beyond, you know, animal welfare. This has to do with the very survival, I think, of our food system. Um, you know, we have paid a price for making our food become international, that we move it and transport it around the world. Well, along with that goes all the various diseases and everything. And so you no longer have these isolated areas of food production that allows that particular uh, turkey or crop or whatever it may be to become unique and safe to that particular area where it, it's, it's, I mean, it's no different than when Europeans came to the new world, they brought their diseases with them um, that killed off lots of people that had no natural immunity. Well, this is basically what's happening even within our food system. Um, and so these animals that are kept in confinement of thousands of birds within a building um, start mutating bacteria, and now they're mutating viruses. Uh, not that we didn't have diseases, you know, 100 years ago, but the difference is, is 100 years ago, um, we weren't shipping those diseases around the world. They were often isolated to a particular area and didn't get any farther. Uh, 
but now we spread it around the world. And we have killed off so many of our other old varieties have disappeared already from the earth. In fact, the UN says we're losing one domestic animal a month worldwide. And every time we lose one of those birds, we're losing that genetic key that may be the very thing that we need, that that particular bird has been able to survive thousands of years and has developed an immunity to many things. So it's a big system. And, you know, like my bronze turkeys that I have have been here in Kansas, uh, here on the prairie since 1917. So, you know, they've had over 100 years to evolve and to adjust to the bacteria, the bacterial and the flora of this region and have survived. But even I am getting scared because as this bird flu keeps mutating, even my birds may not be able to fight it off. The philosophy, right, of the monoculture risk is that the more biodiversity you have, the more disease-resistant your your population can be if everything is essentially descended from the same breed stock or is the same if it's susceptible to disease, the disease wipes out your entire population. Whereas if you have more variety, it's not a guarantee, but there's a much higher chance that certain breeds will either be immune or resistant to certain disease. Correct. Very much so. Mother Nature hates a monoculture. In in nature, uh, monocultures don't exist. Even my dad used to tell me when I was a kid, if we started having health issues or disease problems, he would always say to us, uh, how would Mother Nature handle this? You know, what would Mother Nature do to correct this? So, you know, and this, I'm talking 50 years ago, you know, my father was aware of the importance of being diverse. Wow, that's interesting. I'm struck by in this example, this is not an animal example, but I'm not sure how many people know that in, I can't remember what year it was, but that the grapevines in France were nearly wiped out by disease. And the main reason France still has a wine industry is because in California, they had planted rootstock from France that survived and became more resistant and, and then was moved back. And I just think that's a poignant example, A, that this problem has happened before. You're not harboring something that nobody's seen. And it was only because of the diversity and the change and the protection that they were able to then kind of start over, if you will. I don't know if they, does that example have a parallel to you or do you think oh, it's yeah, a very, very different? much so. I mean, there was a, you know, you probably see it greater in uh, chickens than you would maybe in turkeys, but there was a time, you know, that many varieties and breeds of chickens were developed uh, to, for a particular region that that particular breed of variety uh, withstood the extreme cold better or it, it, it was able to live in high humidity or in heat. Um, you know, and that approach of actually producing a farm product and, and, a, and a poultry that is unique to that environment is completely removed out of our system today. Everything is artificial. 
if we were to lose electricity or if we were to lose refrigeration, if we were to, uh, or whatever, everything would go, go away. Everything is artificial now. The turkeys don't naturally mate, so they have to be artificially inseminated. And from there on, everything is artificial. The incubation, the refrigeration, uh, they have now developed these animals that grow so rapidly that they have to design these high-tech food diets to meet that high energy demand of that particular animal. So when, when people talk about being organic or when they talk about uh, climate problems or the use of fossil fuel, well, our entire poultry system is 100% dependent upon fossil fuel for its very existence. Without that, none of that would exist. If man stopped intervening in the reproduction of artificial reproduction of poultry, it would all disappear within a year. Wow. Well, with that <laughs> rather dire note, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back, though. And I want to ask you about the, the, the flip side of that, of, of, of your passion for rearing, uh, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, standard bread poultry. So stay with us. We'll be back with more from poultry rancher Frank Reese. This episode is supported by HRN business member, Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX. Chemists in the Kitchen is a YouTube video series by LabX, spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through topics like making your own pickles, the chemistry behind ceviche, and much, much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your own kitchen. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Subscribe on YouTube to watch the entire series for free. Chemist in the Kitchen by LabX is a program of the National Academy of Sciences and supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Welcome back. We're talking to Frank Reese, president and founder of the Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch in Lindsburg, Kansas, about his mission to save heritage breeds of American poultry. So with your kind of reality check about the massive artificial nature of the poultry industry in the United States and around the world, I did want to ask you, and because we haven't talked that much about what you are doing and and particularly your passion for it, like when did you decide, you know, breeding turkeys and rearing turkeys was going to be your life's work? And and was it early on that you started advocating for their preservation or was that a switch you made at a certain more recent point in time? Okay. As a child, um, my older brother and sister got sent to the barn to milk cows and stuff like that. And at the age of four or five, you know, I got sent to the chicken house. And so I learned to, to love to work with them, uh, to see them and so on. And then, you know, once I got, you know, and my dad showed cattle and hogs. And so growing up, going to the county fair, the state fair was all very important to me. And so I wanted to show my chickens. I wanted to show my turkeys. And that was my introduction into standard bread poultry. 
uh, as I would go to the state fairs and to the poultry shows, I started meeting who I considered some of the great master breeders uh, and promoters of standard bred poultry. Um, both men and women don't, a lot of people don't realize there were, you know, way back in the first part of the century, many of the great people and breeders of, of standard bred poultry were women who did a lot of work because agriculture back in the turn of the last century, uh, men were in charge of the cattle, the hogs, and the sheep, and the horses and the women were in charge of all the poultry and the eggs. So, uh, but that's another host, but that's where my love of it came from. And then as time went on, I, I got very involved in showing poultry and, and was a member of the American Poultry Association, went ahead and got my judging turkey license and everything with the APA. But then in about 1990, I began to realize that all the people who had taught me were all starting to die. And along with them was the destruction of their flocks. And by the late 1998-99 or whatever, I began to really realize there was no place for me to go get these birds anymore. Um, the, everybody was was dying off at a fairly rapid rate. And I wasn't too sure what to do about it. But then Marion Burroughs from the New York Times called me and said she was looking for the best tasting turkey in America. And she'd heard about my work through the Livestock Conservancy. And so she wanted to try some of my turkeys. And so I sent her a bronze and Narragansett and a bourbon red. And she got turkeys from all the big guys and everybody else. But anyway, my turkeys were put on the cover of the New York Times. I won all three prizes. And that's when Patrick Martins contacted me. And we, I sold turkeys the first year to Slow Foods in New York. But what that did was that opened the door uh, to get the, the story of these birds out there. And hopefully, you know, that old saying, you've got to eat them to save them, um, began to come into fruition and became part of my mission was to get him back on the table again. And that was 20 years ago. And it's been, it's, it's been a journey and it's not been easy because uh, the infrastructure in this country to support that type of farming or the type of farming that I have has um, been completely dismantled and gone. There's only one processing plant in all of America that is capable of doing processing my turkeys. If they go out of business, I'm out of business. And how, how far away are they from where you are in Kansas? They're in Ohio. It's a 12 hour drive uh, for the trucks, you know, cause when we do turkeys now, uh, we try to do at least 8,000 for, for slow foods. And you gotta get those numbers like that to be able to try to get the costs down. And uh, also because I have to meet all the federal laws and rules of the USDA and everything to be able to sell my birds. Um, where the big industry, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, they own every aspect of it, from the feed companies to the mills, to the truckers, to the processors. They own the breeders, they own, they own everything. And so, you know, 
it's a whole different system than the old system. You know, when I was a kid, there was a local butcher in every little town. And when Thanksgiving came, everybody brought their turkeys into the butcher and you had some done for your family and you sold some to the butcher and that paid for the feed bill. That old system is completely gone now. And so, but even how people approach poultry and chickens is radically different. I mean, the industry is based, really makes their money on value-added products uh, more than they do selling those turkeys at Thanksgiving. That's a tiny, it almost minimal part of their annual income. Their real income is selling that deli meat to the Subway sandwich shop uh, or selling those packages of smoked turkey in, in the deli rack at your grocery store. That's where the big money is. It isn't selling those whole turkeys at Thanksgiving. So we have to fight against that. <clears throat> what we're selling turkeys for is actually the real cost. And none of us are getting rich off doing that, especially this year. Well, yeah, no, I was going to ask you about that. And I thought if, if someone is, is both alarmed by what type of turkey meat they've been consuming and serving and wants to go, you know, sample one of your products, I think one of the first things they'll experience is sticker shock. But I wanted to give you a chance to comment on why there is such a big difference between what a turkey from you costs and even a turkey at Whole Foods or or a more expensive butcher than just the the major supermarkets? Well, one of the, our cost is higher in every aspect. Um, you pay a price for diversity. You pay a price for natural mating. Although I get about as good a fertility rate with my naturally mating as the commercial guys do with their artificial. But my turkeys grow slower. It takes me twice as long to get them to market weight. Uh, the feed conversion of a pound of feed to a pound of meat is about half of the industrial turkey. Um, so everything costs more. But the other part of it is, since I don't own the feed mill, I don't own the turkey trucks, I don't own the processing plant, um, everything, I get charged about twice as much for everything. Um, and it's just the price we pay. I mean, I had a lady a number of years ago called to talk to me about um, turkeys. And she was telling me the price that they paid for them in New York. And I said, I know that and I appreciate that. But very little of that money comes to me. And so... Um, but that's okay. I, you know, I just got to make enough to be able to keep it going. No, I think that was a great explanation of, of all the points at which also in the process, because the, the, the more traditional supply chain, which I think was made really apparent during the COVID pandemic, uh, is broken down. So there, there's no, there's no competition. There's no, um, you can't realize these savings. I mean, I think the summary for me is the cost that you're paying for turkey in the grocery store most is basically artificially lowered by all of these efficiencies in the system that are probably not good for us health-wise in the long term and are putting it as a, a, a precipice. I mean, actually, I was in the grocery store just yesterday and these two women were asking one of the people who worked there, 
oh, why are you out of all this turkey? Now, she just said, I couldn't get it from my supplier. But in my head, I was like, that's because of all this stuff Frank Reese is about to describe that's breaking down in the system. I mean, the answer was bird flu, but she either didn't know that or wasn't going to say that to the, the customer. Yeah, the system in which we produce our our food in this country only exists because we were so wealthy. Um, the reason, you know, that everything is artificially produced now, um, and plus people are willing to pay a fortune for convenience. Um, but by that I mean is, is if you can already cut it up, half cook it or already cook it, or bread it or package it and freeze it, people will pay a fortune to get those things uh, as compared to buying a fresh whole turkey and going home and cooking it. Um, so that whole system, but, you know, the industry is quite aware of that, you know, um, and so they have really focused on that. You know, 68% of all chicken meat being produced worldwide is being produced for the fast food restaurant industry. Uh, very few whole chickens are sold in stores. Um, and turkeys, you know, if you can get a 20-pound tom, I keep saying that, a 40-pound tom in 19 weeks, that then becomes deli meat. And instead of paying $2 a pound, now if you go and get a little six-ounce package of Lewis Rich turkey deli meat and you pay 5 or $6, so now all of a sudden that turkey meat is worth $15, $16 a pound. So that's where the real money is. Um, our whole system— Well, I'm just doing the math because where I live in uh, Southern California, a pound of deli meat turkey of the better quality is, is about $10 a pound on sale. Which means that turkey, by equivalency, is a four hundred dollar turkey. Yes, I, I think just to get just just to animate what you're talking about and the the price difference for the convenience and the value add is actually you know by you buying only that small part compared to buying one of a, a you know turkey your turkeys from Heritage Foods, it's actually even more expensive. Yeah. Of course, part of what's happening is is you're having to pay the salary of all the people in between. I'm not saying that good or bad, you know, um, but, you know, you're paying for the shipping and you're, you know, and the because that turkey leaves here, it goes to Ohio and from Ohio, it has to go back to Kansas City to a distributing center and the distributing center, then it's sent off. And then all those people in New York that have to then fill all those orders and repackage them again and ship them out again. So it's all those individual people in between. I mean, it's no different than wheat farmers. Uh, you know, the wheat farmer, if you took the amount of wheat that's in a loaf of bread and break it down to what the farmer is getting paid, they're getting paid about 15 cents on the dollar. All the rest of that goes to the company that's marketing it. Um, and it's no different than turkeys. If you're if you're paying two dollars and fifty cents for a turkey at your local grocery store, about fifty cent of, fifty cents of that maybe goes to the farmer. So, it's just the system we have now. Well, let's talk about system the potential for system change. And you, I feel like you sort of described a mountain or an oil tanker that 
is going to be very hard to shift and change. But I know you're trying in your your own way and with your sort of starting point in Lindsberg. But can you tell us more about the mission of, of the Good Shepherd Conservancy and what you're trying to, to, to do with the Conservancy specifically? Yeah, over the last number of years, I used to go out and give a lot of talks at different places to try to talk to farmers and stuff. And I soon realized I was getting absolutely nowhere. Um, that what was missing out of a lot of this is the, what we've just been talking about, that's the economics. Um, so my part of what I want the Conservancy to do is to help people sit down who want to do what I'm doing. And we're getting a lot of requests from people who, are want, who, want, to, who want to raise normal animals, they, you know, standard bred chickens and turkeys. And we're trying to help them to understand that what it takes to make that happen, all of the issues that we've just been talking about and sharing that. Um, I work with a lot of youth, 4-H kids, FFA kids, um, who don't want to raise those morbidly obese, giant commercial chickens and turkeys. They want to raise something that acts normal and can run and that's still pretty. Um, and so part of what the Conservancy will do is to reach out to that. But also the Conservancy is going to be more than that. I want it to be a place where the general public can come and hear the story of poultry, the, you know, the last 200 years of what's happened to poultry in America. Uh, I want it to be a place for an archives where um, many of the land-grant universities have thrown all that stuff away. And so, because this, this type of farming is not being taught anywhere. Um, and then beyond that, I want to have live birds here in one of the buildings eventually where people can actually see, you know, the different types of turkeys and chickens of the past. Um, and so, and then the big thing for me is I want to continue to do the scientific research. I've been working some with Kansas State University Department of Meat, uh, where we've actually been doing the nutritional value of the meat and doing a comparison, because it's important to me that we get the science behind this. That we aren't just mumbling off a bunch of stuff that doesn't exist, but I want to be able to say, here, we've done the study. Now, if you want to see the difference in the quality of meat and the value of the meat, um, here's the work that we've been doing. Um, and then to teach people, the next generation, how to be breeders, how to select. How do you walk into a flock of 5,000 turkeys and pick out the top 100 to be your breeders for the next year? Because if you don't do that correctly, you won't be able to compete. The quality will go down very quickly. Yeah, I was struck by uh, that in, in, in preparing for the show that I think it was a quote from 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 your mentor saying, you know, I can give someone a wannabe breeder my whole flock, but it doesn't mean that unless they're taught that selection process, that even starting with a good breed stock is going to end up giving you the trajectory. You, it doesn't happen by random. It takes a kind of learned knowledge. Is that right? Yeah, it's learning phenotype. It's you know, it it's, it takes many many years 
to figure it out, you know, uh, because you become the steward of that breed. You become the guardian of that particular breed of variety. Uh, I'm just old enough, thank goodness, to have remembered and worked with many of what I consider the master breeders of the last century. Um, I mean, Norman, who was probably my main one, there was others than Norman, but even him, who finally after 40 years of working with him, he told me I finally had learned. Um, it, 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 it's, it's what some people call having an eye for the animal. Of being able to see. And it's important that we do this because if we don't save our biodiversity, it's going to be lost forever. And what's unique about poultry, there is no other way of saving them other than the live bird. You know, with mammals, you know, we have all these places. There's a big one back east, I think, in Connecticut or someplace back there. And there's one in Denver where they've gone around and collected the semen and the eggs from uh, the ovum from various mammals and they've got them in these big crowd pack refrigerations where they'll have them for the future. You can't do that with poultry. You can't freeze a chicken egg and bring it back to life. Hmm. So unless we actually do something to preserve these birds, the living animal into the future, they're gonna be gone forever. And we cannot remake them because many of the breeds that I have that have been evolving over the last 200 years or more, um, the original ancestry of those birds that they made them um, are no longer in existence. You can make something that might look like them, but they will never be the same because the gene pool is lost. And that particular gene pool may be the key to salvation for our food safety into the future. So we need to have these birds spread around in different parts of the United States, um, especially now with the great fear of all these diseases. And are you, given the work you've started doing at the Conservancy and with, with students, I mean, are you optimistic? Are there enough people interested in learning to be a turkey breeder like you, or is that really still a tiny number and you have grave concern? Well, my thing about it is to have this type of, there are a few young people out there, but the only thing is I always say, you know, you could have a hundred people come to learn and out of that group, there might be one, but that's all you need is that one young person who you can tell has the spark and they're going to stick with it for life because this is a lifelong work. Um, I've helped a lot of people get started and very few of them last. It, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a tough road uh, and you have to love the birds. You have to love what you're doing. Um, I can't imagine my world without every morning seeing my turkeys. Um, and, you know, that's the other big thing, a big difference between what I do and what the industry does. Um, a love for the animal itself can't, can't exist if you're killing the chickens in six weeks or if you're killing the turkeys in 12 weeks. I mean, and you just receive the baby in a big truck, you feed them for 12 weeks and ship them off and they're killed. 
there's no personal connection to that animal. Where when I look at my various turkeys, my bourbon reds or my bronze or my narragansetts, I remember the people. Um, you know, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I'm keeping a promise to somebody before me. And so the aesthetics and the beauty of farming is lost when you go into a monoculture. You know, it's like walking into a wild field of prairie and seeing multiple types of grasses and flowers and insects. It's so much prettier, you know, but <clears throat> that's all been lost. And we got, we got, to, and that's part of what I'm hoping the conservancy will help do is bring that back. It all gets down to, you know, money, you know, how, you know, how are we going to support this? How are we going to keep it going? We've gotten a tremendous amount of interest and I, the county extension agents and so on are really hoping that we can get this going because they have no place to take all their kids. So before we run out of time, I want to ask you about, you know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving and given all you've said, I was just curious, and you were talking about your relationship development and honoring the, the, the past of all those breeders that came before you. But when you choose to, to set your Thanksgiving table, how, how do you, what do you serve? Which, do you choose the same uh, breed of your, your, your turkeys every year to to slaughter what what goes into your thanksgiving table and eating plan well it's been a tradition in my family going back to my mother my grandmother whatever um the biggest turkey was the one we kept because we were a big family and what is not being sold in what i'm capable of doing if you want the best tasting turkey you ever had in your life get one of my standard bread toms that's about three or four years old. And the flavor will be so intense. It's so much different um, than those that you buy at the store. Uh, they have that, they have a thick layer of fat from years of, of, of living and everything. So to tradition of my family to, to cut it short is, is, you know, an old Tom, that's what we, you know, the color of the feathers doesn't affect the taste. The, mm. How the turkey is built and how the turkey looks has to do with the genetics that I select. Um, you know, how the muscle looks and tastes and feels in its nutritional value uh, is the genes behind it. It's like I tell people very quickly, I don't care how well you treat a horse, how much you love and feed it organic and let it run on green grass and be happy, you can, you're not going to make it a zebra. It is what it is at the moment of its conception. So my turkeys, at least 60% of how they look, taste, and, and so on on the table has to do with the genetics. You can ruin them with poor feed. Uh, you can change the taste of the meat by what you feed them, um, but you can't change the skeletal structure and how the meat is laid down. Um, 
So that's what we do in my family. Now my my mother is gone, and but my older sister has become the new turkey cooker in our family, and she's become you know quite good at it. And so I think what you're saying is you choose amongst your different breeds, not based on, you're not saying, oh, this year we're going to have this breed. You look at the life cycle of the turkeys you have. Yeah. And so it it will be a different breed, but it may taste similarly because it's different breeds that are given the same time to mature and develop the fat and eating the same thing. So that actually then the, the taste is relatively similar. But could you uh, also comment on um, that cooking this type of turkey is is a slightly different endeavor and experience. So could you, could you comment on how you guys do it or how your sister uh, does it that might differ from what people are kind of used to or what I said at the top of the show about Julia's recommendations? Well, you know, the big thing about cooking a turkey, especially these old type turkeys, is, is uh, wrap them up. Don't let them dry out. Whatever that, you know, never roast them in an open roasting pan. Um, If you're going to cook the whole turkey, um, you know, I used to ask mom, I said, when do you know they're done? And she said, they're done when, when the bones move and the juice runs clear. So she said, you just got to pay attention. You'll know when the turkey's done. But in the old days, and I've seen Julia do this. I saw uh, Martha Stewart do this, who has been a wonderful advocate of what I do, um, where you take cheesecloth and you soak it in fat, whatever you want, lard or whatever you can get, and you keep laying that over top of the turkey. That's what they used to do before they had aluminum foil and plastic bags and all that. Um but it, it was a way of keeping the meat moist and keeping it in. Um, but a mother would cook, you know, the, the turkey for a very long time, and, and yet it never dried out. Well, and I think you were saying, too, your turkeys, because they have more fat on them, that also is a natural sort of... Well, they know, do if of- they're older. Now, you know, a lot of the turkeys we sell to, to Patrick and so on are young. They're, they're not going to have that natural layer of fat um, that you're going to have. Now, of course, I have gone to using a roasting bag and, and roast my turkey in a bag just to keep all the moisture in there and everything. Um, but there's, you know, the main thing is, is you can take them apart and do that type of thing and all the other stuff. But. My turkeys, you you can do whatever you want with them. I had people deep fry them, you know. But again, if you're going to deep fry them, uh, get a small, young turkey. Um, but if you get one of my turkeys, the main thing to remember is, is they come with nothing. You're getting pre-turkey. In other words, they have not been pre-basted. They haven't been injected with tons of artificial flavors and salts and everything like the turkey at the grocery store. So is going to be up to you to decide, you know, if you want to brine it overnight, go for it, you know, do whatever. But the main thing I really suggest when you, the first part of the roasting, that you seal it up. Mm. Whether if you want to use, you know, I've seen people where they take uh, big slabs of pork fat, and, you know, and lay it over the turkey breast or whatever. 
but you know, I, you know, and some people don't want to use aluminum foil, but find some way of sealing that turkey up. And if you want to brown it and do all that at the end, then take whatever you've got and turn the heat up and brown it at the end. But, you know, mother would use butter all over the turkey. Um, you know, there's different ways of doing it. Cooking my turkeys is not that difficult. Um, the chickens that, if you ever want to talk chickens, that's another whole story. Far more people have failed cooking my chickens than they ever have failed cooking my turkeys. All right. We'll have to come back and do chickens next. We can hear an update from you on the conservancy. All right. We're going to take a break and we'll hear Frank's Julia moment. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Frank, what's your Julia moment? Watching her discuss chickens. <laughs> that I mean, I, I, I had to get a copy of it, and I've shared it with so many people. Because um, she was quite aware that it was disappearing. So, you know, that was very important to me. Yeah, and I think uh, just for the audience, Frank's referring to a, a, a famous episode. And in fact, you can watch the clip on the Julia Child Foundation, juliachildfoundation.org website, where Julia goes through and she has all the different sizes of chickens lines up and she named them and she calls them the chicken sisters. And, you know, with great enthusiasm, she's an entertainment value. She's introducing those things. But I love, Frank, that you added why she did it and 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 what she was trying to to communicate, even as people just found it amusing, there was a much bigger message to it. It was very big. In fact, it reminded me of my mother's old cookbook. It broke down all the different types of chickens and how they were to be used in culinary reasons. Um, and she, and what she did there was actually just identical to what mother's old cookbook talked about. And yet, well, I'm curious. Do you remember what cookbook? It's called the Lighthouse is? Cookbook, I think. Because hmm? when you went to the chicken section, it actually told you when you went out to the chicken yard what to look for when you picked your chicken to cook, uh, how to process it, kill it, everything. So it was walking out to the chicken yard and picking the chicken. Um, and then it had all the various things um, that it was an old rooster you know, lot. I would say 99% of the people today would know what to do if I gave them an eight-year-old rooster to cook. Which is ironic because the dish, one of the dishes Julia is most closely associated with coco vin, coke means cock for rooster. Yep. And it the dish comes from the fact that people didn't have always a young chicken to cook and had to eat an old rooster and you needed to cook an old rooster very differently. One of my favorite stories about Coco Vaughn is, is I had a chef who got an old rooster from me and he was going to make it and he was going to use Julia's recipe. And so he did. And he brought it to me. And I said, this is horrible. 
I said, what cookbook did you use? And he showed me. And what they had done was, is because uh, I've got Julia Child's recipe from many, many years ago. Um, he had used the revised vision version, which now was used in the industrial chicken. And I told him, I said, go back home, put it back in the oven, bake it for another five hours and bring it back to me. And they did. And then it was wonderful. Yeah, because the invention of Coco Van, Coco Van, like many French classic sauces and things, was be designed to help make old <laughs> meat and old animals much more palatable. Yes. But you have to cook them very differently than than something, you know, much younger. So, well, Frankie, thank you so much for joining us and, and, and talking turkey uh, at this time of year. Thank you for caring. It, it, it's our honor and our pleasure. And thanks everyone for listening. We wish all of you a delicious Thanksgiving filled with good natural food, good company, and good cheer. You can learn more and support Frank's conservation work at goodshepherdconservancy.org. Check out at good underscore shepherd underscore conservancy on Instagram and at goodshepherdconservancy, all one word on Facebook. You can go to heritagefoods.com to order one of Frank's birds for Thanksgiving while supplies last. Our own Heritage Radio Network was founded by Heritage Foods founder Patrick Martins with the goal of fomenting slow food culture across the country and around the world. The Heritage Foods business was itself inspired by Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch as its exclusive distributor. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience for all the latest in and around Santa Barbara. The Julia Child audio clip from The Front Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.